Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Before we get into Luke, and many of you, if you've been at Hill City before, we've been going through the book of Luke uh, for over, gosh, a year and a half now. We'll end it this summer, by the way. End of the summer, we'll wrap up the book of Luke. But one of the things you've seen over and over is me draw this uh, picture that I think is a very good framework to understand the story of the Bible, to understand sin and brokenness and, and beauty, to understand lots of things. And we'll use it today, and so I want to quickly kind of remind us of this. And use, again, if you've been here, you've seen this. This understanding that God creates the world, human existence, well, just the world's existence. He speaks it out of the darkness. And this is God's space, and everything happens as God intends. And God, after he creates all the things for, for days, of, eventually he comes and he creates man. He says, let us create man in our image. And so if you can think, there's like two circles here that overlap. It's God's space and man's space together. In the Garden of Eden, shalom, Hebrew word that means perfection, goodness, flourishing. That's the story of the Bible. It starts where God's space and human space perfectly interact. We'll last about three chapters in Genesis. And evil comes through a serpent and invites humans to a different reality, a different kingdom. Where this is God's kingdom, where everything happens as God intends, evil come and invites, comes and invites humans to create a different reality, a different kingdom. And it's through a rebellion in the form of eating a, a fruit that was told by them not to eat. And when humans eat this fruit, what happens is they, they proclaim to God that they're their own kingdom. We want to be our own boss. And so what happens is where these two circles of human and God overlap, now they're separate. And you have um, the human, or I'll just put world, over here, outside of God's space. And where God's kingdom is a, is a kingdom of peace and goodness and love and joy and shalom, the kingdom of the world is death and destruction and hatred and revenge. And these two kingdoms are opposed to one another, and so what happens in the story is, is God removes himself from the kingdom, from this kingdom of the world, human kingdom now. And we have these two separate kingdoms that can't interact. And, and God could have left it that way, but the story goes on, and God eventually comes to a guy named Abram, and he, he tells him that he, this is my own kind of telling of the story, he tells Abram, I'm going to start something in you that's going to reclaim my kingdom, my world, and actually what will happen is these two circles will overlap once again. And so he calls Abram to be a new nation, and he forms a covenant. And so what happens is God creates this space where human and God can interact. And that space is through a nation of Israel. As their years go on, eventually he brings, gives them a temple, and that temple was the place where God's glory would dwell among the people, where God's space and human space, space could overlap. And all through your scriptures, the Old, Old Testament, there's 
many pockets of God interacting with humans through King David, through the prophets, bringing God's space to human space. Though there's still two kingdoms and though we live in a kingdom of world and darkness and evil and, and sickness and, and like you feel it, there's also a kingdom of God, of goodness, love, peace, joy, and we're right here. And eventually this story, as you walk through your Bible, comes together with a cross, with Jesus coming. And so here's what happens with Jesus. Jesus comes as this representation of God's kingdom. He comes from God, perfect son of God, but yet lives in a kingdom of darkness in the world. And while he lives there, he lives in a way, though he lives here in the world, he perfectly reflects God's kingdom to perfection. And then when he dies on a cross, what he is doing is he's securing this dwelling place of God with people where though we're here, we can be here through the cross, through this middle space. Yeah, we've heard this before. I think it's a great framework to think about the story of the Bible. Remember, the, the, so, so there's, here's where we are right now. We're right here. The cross is our meeting place uh, where we can dwell with God because of Jesus' death on the cross. The story one day, it hasn't happened yet, is not that we will go floating off into the clouds with angel wings, but that actually Jesus will come back restoring these two circles to one another. Like here's, this is so like, confusing among people. Heaven of the Bible is not us in the clouds. It's Jesus coming back and reclaiming his earth and its goodness, kicking out evil forever, restoring God's kingdom forever. That's heaven. And we're kind of in that in-between now, waiting for that. Guys, we've seen this before, right? We've talked about this. The reason I tell you this, this will be a framework to think through what's going to happen in the story in Luke today. So Luke 19.45, if you remember last week, Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry, right? Comes into Jerusalem, all the, the, his disciples and a bunch of the people, the Israelites, lay palm branches. They start proclaiming, here comes our Messiah. I told you last week, at this point, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's the Savior to come. But remember, we've talked about this. What is their idea of Messiah? Come on, talk to me. What's their idea? Warrior, power, their idea of Messiah was Jesus was entering Jerusalem to overthrow the government of Rome, kick them out, create a Jewish state that would then rule the world. That's what they believed Messiah. That's why they were shouting and dancing for joy, because they thought their deliverer had finally come. Well, it had, just in a different way. So Israel's, and if you can imagine this, You've been waiting for years and years, and your grandparents and great-grandparents have told you stories. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will deliver us from this oppression. And now the Messiah is here, and you're dancing for joy. And Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives about a mile and a half outside Jerusalem. He crosses the Kidron Valley, comes up to the hill of Jerusalem. Remember when he sees it, he weeps, and he enters into Jerusalem. And here's what you're thinking if you're Israelite. All right, <laughs> it's go time. He's going to get his army together, and we're going to rebel. You're thinking that Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to attack this kingdom of Rome. But let's look what happens in verse 45. And he entered, he entered the temple. Now, temple, that's God's space. 
Right? The temple is the meeting place for Israel, God's chosen people, to, for God to dwell, to interact with them. Jesus enters the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, and it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So Jesus enters Jerusalem to attack a kingdom. But which kingdom? The kingdom, not, not kingdom of God, but the kingdom of those that say the representation, that, that they represent God. He attacks this kingdom. And he drives out the money changers, right? They, they, again, they thought he's going to come and attack and, and lead a charge against broken, rebellious, corrupt Rome. He doesn't. He goes to the religious leaders who represent God, and that's where Jesus is going to start his work. This always kind of confused me when Jesus came in. Like, why did Jesus come into a temple and just, what appears to be, have just a temper tantrum like can you imagine the scene hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of money changers and people animals it was like a stockyard there look like think the fairgrounds the animals stop I mean animals everywhere people selling sacrificial animals Jesus comes in and drives everyone out of the temple flips tables yells kicks them out like um, Jesus has some authority here and he overthrows this system and he gets so angry at what's happening. The question, why is Jesus so angry? He's not angry that people are selling things in the temple. I had a, a pastor at a church I was, I was in at once that wouldn't allow youth to raise money for like mission trips or something because Jesus didn't allow money to be raised in the church. That's not what's happening here. Here's what makes Jesus angry. He walks in and he sees these people that are selling animals. But they're not just selling animals. They're selling animals for a sacrifice. But here's what's happening. You have the high priest, Annas and Sophias, high priest and ex-high priest, that are running a little operation. It's a pretty genius idea. Michael and I have been kind of trying to figure out how to do our own little version of this. They get to approve what animals are used for sacrifice. Okay, and so, so imagine if you're a Jewish peasant living in Galilee and you travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's this several-day feast. You're going to give your animals a sacrifice to God and you bring your best animal that, that, that looks perfect, looks good best animal, you, you lead them all the way there and you take them and you have to go in order to sacrifice an animal to God you have to go to the high priest or his group of priests to get that animal cleared and so here's what happened you would bring your animal and the high priest or one of his little, little group would say no, that won't work that's not good enough but we do have approved animals for sale. If you'll go out into the temple, you can buy one of our approved animals. Guess who owns it? The priest. And they were charging huge markups to get these approved animals. So again, you're a poor Jewish peasant who wants to worship God. You bring your best. Your best isn't good enough. You have no choice. Now you have to give more money to buy this approved animal. It was this total scheme that they use to make money. The temple tax, this is good. So Jesus flips over the coin changers. Here's why. If you wanted to come and give your offering to God, which was required of, of you as a Jew, you would come and give your tax once a year to the temple. 
You don't live in Jerusalem, so you have these Roman coins, which is the currency of the day. And you take your little Roman coin to the temple, and they say, oh, wait a second, we don't accept Roman coins here. We only accept Jewish currency. And you're like, well, I don't have some. Well, that's okay. We have money exchangers here, and they will help you out. No, they will rob you. And they will take your money and give it, like the exchange rate is awful. That's what's happening. It's not like Jesus just saw people selling things and it makes him mad. Jesus saw a corrupt Jewish religious leadership exploiting people, poor people. And he flips out. Jesus goes into Jerusalem and instead of attacking Rome, he attacks those that represent God and are doing so in a very corrupt way. Okay, as so you keep going here, we're going to skip some stuff here. Luke 19, 47. He begins teaching in Jerusalem. Remember, we're like a few days away. This is Monday, Tuesday. He'll be, he'll be crucified on Friday. We're a few days away from his death. He was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and principal men of the, of the people were seeking to destroy him. We've talked about this. At this point, the religious leadership want nothing to do with Jesus. Can you see why? He just, he just ended their little money-making business. And they want to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And so remember, we've talked about this. At this point, the Jewish population still loves Jesus. They still think Jesus is a Messiah and he has a crowd and they are hanging on every word he was saying. Okay, we skip down Luke chapter 20. We're going to jump down to verse 19. So it, what we're skipping, Jesus tells a parable that's basically aimed right at the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees. Kind of naming the fact that God is done with you, and now the disciples are going to take the banner of leadership in this new thing called the church. That's basically the parable. Verse 20, or yeah, verse 19 of Luke chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They were very wise. He did. Go back and read the parable. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver them up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So here's the deal. These religious leaders, they, get, they want to get away with Jesus to be done with him. They don't believe he is a Messiah. He's different than they expected. They want to get rid of him. But they can't just go and do it themselves. The people love him. So here's what they need to do. They need Rome to do their dirty work for them. That's their goal. And so they start thinking of how do we trap Jesus? How do we get him in this place where Rome can kill him and we don't have to because they're afraid if they do something to Jesus, the people will revolt against them. So you have these groups of people in Luke 20, 19. You have scribes, you have chief priests. Those are the ones that were in charge of that money-making business. Scribes were people that, that interpreted the law, the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible. That was their job. These two groups hated one another. They fought all the time, but they unite together around a common enemy now, and that enemy is Jesus. And here's what they need. All they need Jesus to do is to publicly announce that he is the Messiah and he is here to overthrow Rome. That is all they need to do. If you've ever studied Roman history, they don't deal kindly with people that want to overthrow their empire. All they need Jesus to do is publicly announce he's come to bring the kingdom of God 
and be done with Rome. That's what they need him to do. So they start trying to make plans. They bring some people, some spies to infiltrate his groups that are listening. That's all they need him to do. And this is the setup for Luke 20, verse 21, and this is where we'll focus in today. So they asked Jesus, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, this isn't genuine. They're manipulating. They need Jesus to do something here. Here's their question. Here's their setup. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Meaning, is it lawful, like should we pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar's the, the emperor of Rome. But Jesus perceives their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, that was a Roman coin, whose likeness or who is on this, is what he says. Well, whose likeness and inscription does it have? On the Roman coin, there was a picture of Caesar, and it said, Caesar is king, son of God, high priest. He's kind of names that himself. I'm son of God, high king, priest. On the Roman coin. So Jesus says, hey, who has a denarius? And the Pharisees give him one. He says, whose image is on this? And they said, or whose likeness Christian does it have? They said Caesar's, because it did. Then here's what Jesus said. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And render or give to God the things that are God. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveled at his answer. They became silent. Now, to us, it's like a silly question about taxes. But here's what's happening. Here's the backstory. So I told you last week, there was always a revolt in the air. Okay, and this coin, this Roman coin represented something. It represented a corrupt nation coming and putting in bondage the people of God. That's what that Roman coin represented. The year Jesus was born, a, a guy named Judea, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas, started a revolt around this idea of paying taxes. Like this was, if, if you can think of the political argument of the day, this was it. Why do we need to pay taxes to a corrupt government? By the way, your money, Israelites, go to fuel their army, which oppresses you. So a guy named Judas in 4 um, AD started a revolt to overthrow Rome and quit paying taxes, got a bunch of people, ended up with 2,000 people being crucified in the city of Jerusalem, 2,000 Jews by Rome. When Jesus is asked this question, everyone's ears perk up because this is the question of the day. There are still people in the crowd here of, around Jesus that know someone that was killed in that revolt. Imagine seeing your grandpa crucified hanging in Jerusalem. You hate Rome. You hate them. And there are people in this crowd that have images of their loved ones suffering because they tried to overthrow Rome. And so when Jesus is asked, do we pay tribute to Rome? Do we need to pay our taxes? Like this emotion, like you can imagine the emotion that builds up as people hear this. In the crowd, you have this political party known as the Zealots. You guys heard of the Zealots? These are a group of Israelite men that want to rebel against Rome again. Like they're ready to go. All we need to get everyone together, we're going to rebel. There's a group known as the Herodians that were pro-King Herod, which was the kind of the puppet king of the Jews. So there's all these people. I mean, it is the emotionally charged issue of the day. And Jesus is asked in front of everyone, 
Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's the reality. They just got Jesus in a catch-22. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, that's, not, that's all they need. Hey, Pilate, Jesus here is telling us to revolt against you, rebel. He's trying to overthrow. Pilate kills him. Their problem's done. If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, now Jesus is taking the side of these evil Romans and all of the Israelites will walk away. Do you see the problem? They had him, they thought. Whatever he says, he's going to make someone angry and we'll be done with just this Jesus problem. And Jesus responds, yes, pay taxes, but give allegiance to God. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's... See, if he says give to Caesar what's Caesar's and stops there, he's taking the side of Rome. But he says give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. Here's what Jesus does. He's asked to pick a side. Rome or God? You know what he does? Both. Both. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God. Now, there's this whole other thing that he does here that we, could, that we could miss. It's very subtle. So here's the question. Jesus, do we give do it. So, so Jeff, you're going to be, okay, you're going to play. So Jeff's going to come. I'm, I get to play Jesus here. You get to play the evil people, okay? So Jeff's going to come and ask me, hey, do I need to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question, right? Here's what Jesus says. Um, Show me a denarius. So Jeff pulls out, well, here's a denarius. What just happened here? Who has a denarius? <laughs> Pharisee. Jesus doesn't even have one. Give me a denarius. And in front of everyone now, he looks like a fool because Jesus doesn't have it. It would be like this, this whole debate in, in church for years on should, should Christians drink alcohol or should they not? Jesus gets asked that question. Let me see your bottle opener. Okay. <laughs> That's what he does. That's exactly what he does. He just totally makes a fool of them and they don't even realize it. That's a whole other thing going on that I just couldn't, couldn't pass up. It's like Ju Jesus jujitsu type thing here. What is Jesus doing? He doesn't say revolt. He doesn't say, yes, go against Rome, forget paying your taxes. He doesn't say revolt, but he also doesn't say Caesar is God. He also doesn't proclaim what you are supposed to proclaim, that Caesar is above everything. He doesn't do either. When Jesus is pushed into a corner, and you can look at all these interactions he had, when Jesus is pushed into a corner and asked to choose a side, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Here's the reality, Christians. You are a citizen of two kingdoms. Do you realize this? If you're a believer in here, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. The kingdom that will come, the kingdom here that we bring by doing good, and whether you like this or not, you're a citizen of another kingdom. Most of you are American citizens. I know we have a few that are not here, but most of you are. Here's the reality that Jesus is saying. You should have allegiance to two kingdoms. You should. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You have allegiance to two kingdoms. You have ultimate allegiance to one kingdom, God's kingdom. So, you are a kingdom. You are part of a kingdom of the world, America, most of you. This kingdom of the world. 
Here's the reality. To get to church today, you got in your car and you drove on a street. Guess who made that street? The government. And you crossed bridges. Guess who made those bridges? They said, no, come on, guys. Come on, come on. Stay with me. Yeah. And as you were driving, you didn't get jumped by a thug of vandals. Why? Because the government has police officers to keep you safe. You are part of a system. Is it broken? Absolutely. Is it all bad? No. You're here. We have a place to worship. You are part of a world kingdom. And God calls us as Christians to give allegiance to the kingdom we are part of. We are supposed to be good citizens. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. One of the things we've looked at before, the early Christians, as you look at the book of Acts, one of the things that they were marked by was how great of citizens they were. Like I've read this before, a quote from, from one of the Roman emperors, maybe 100 years after Jesus. This is in a world history, uh, some books, I think, by Josephus. But this letter from a Roman Caesar to another guy in the government, here's what he says. These Christians, I hate them. He calls them atheists because right, they don't believe that he's God. He says, these atheists, talking about Christians, I hate them because they are kind to everyone. They take care of their own poor. Actually, they take care of our poor better than us. Whenever we try to torture them, they go joyously and, and love us. He hates them because they're so good. Christians, <laughs> Christians you are part of a kingdom of the world, and God, God calls us to be good citizens of this kingdom. John Piper says this, any allegiance we give to any government, we give as an act of worship to God. I want you to see that. Any allegiance we give to any government, we give as worship to God. Is our government corrupt? Guys, Rome, 10 times more corrupt. I can't imagine living in a town, a city occupied by Rome. You say one thing against Caesar and you are on a cross. And God tells these Jewish believers, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then he says this, give to God what's God. You are also part of another kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And so our submission to Caesar or to a world kingdom is because of our submission to God. So Christians, here, here is our disposition. This should be our submission with limited obedience. Okay? So you, as this person trying to live here, where you're in both and trying to represent God's kingdom and love Jesus and live the way he's called, but you still live in this world and you're still broken. Our posture is obedience or submission with limited obedience. So these same Christians that were known in first century for loving the poor and their neighbors and taking care of people, they would be taken to this little place called the Colosseum and ripped apart by lions. You know why? They wouldn't give ultimate allegiance to Rome. They would not say Caesar is God. You are part of a kingdom, but your number one authority is God's kingdom. Okay, so let's say it like this. You're here in the world, okay? You should not only be about this kingdom, right? All the political things that, that you, sh you can't, we should not be completely occupied 
by this kingdom. But hear this. Some of you are going to like this. But you cannot be 100% focused here because you're both. Both. And this has been a dilemma, a complexity that Christians have wrestled with for years. Like, how do we live as followers of Christ in a broken world, a broken government? And Jesus says, both. Give to Caesars what's Caesars. Give to God what's God. It should start to change the manner in which we live in a world. So, uh, last week, right over here, where's my Blues fans that were really passionate last week? Where are you at? Yep, they're over here. You did it. You did it, right? So Wednesday night, we had our, our, our church gathering, and we're up here in, in the second floor, and I hear some screams and shouts during my message, and I could tell the Blues have probably scored because there's a bar down below. Well, afterwards, a bunch of the staff, we went down and were watching the game. And as the Blues start to close in, you know, to win, it, it start, everyone starts getting really frenzied, and, and it's a really cool environment. And Brad, I, I, I've seen, actually, I'd never seen a full hockey game until this past week. Never have. Seen parts of it. Of course, when I was a kid, we had this little TV, and you couldn't even see the puck because <laughs> like, all you see is people going back and forth. So it wasn't very entertaining. But I'm watching this, and Brad's been a hockey fan, a blues fan since he was a little kid, grew up outside of St. Louis. And as we get closer, like I think Molly has a video, Brad's like dancing and you know, just, just having a good time, right? Now, across the room, there's another guy that, like, I don't know how to explain him, but to say, like, the blues must be his Jesus, because <laughs> he is like weeping. Um, he had a little bit of liquid encour- encouragement, if you will, uh, going around like high-fiving people when he, like, he, I saw him coming. I knew it, like, he high-fived. It's like, wind up, and he's going to break your wrist. But just, every bit of him was like, if the blues win, my life is complete now. And Brad, he's dancing a little much. It's the blues. I mean, come on. It's this complexity, like sports fans. Yeah, be a sports fan. Root for the Cardinals, root for the Blues, Missouri State, we'll, we'll root for you. But you're still here. And looking for this identity or this all, like, my life's going to go on whether or not the Blues win. See, Jesus is here. Now, there are those that say, oh, sports, you shouldn't even be into it. You should be about the things of God. No, root for people. Have fun. Celebrate with your friends. Cheer, dance when your team wins. Both. You're a citizen of two kingdoms. So here's the flaw if we don't understand this. Two flaws, and I've been in this first one for sure, is apathy when it comes to the world kingdom. Political apathy. Eh, whatever happens, happens. God's in control. I don't care who wins. Put my head in the sand. Don't worry about it. As Christians, I don't think we can do that. I don't think Jesus allows us to do that. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But here's the other flaw. And I got this term from Tim Keller. He calls it political simplicity. And here's what he means by that. As follower of Jesus, to look at a world system, a political system, and say, well, it's easy. Like, I know, I'm a Christian, and I know where I stand, and that's where everyone else should stand because I represent Jesus. And having a political, simplistic idea. Listen to me. Jesus was very clear 
when he was asked about God things. He took very hard stances about the kingdom of God. When Jesus was backed into a corner, asked questions about Rome, about politics, he did not allow himself to be backed into a corner. Jesus never went to this simplistic, oh yeah, here's the deal, Rome, I'll, I'll tell you about Rome. Uh, he didn't do it. So political simplicity is this idea that, well, this is easy because I represent Jesus. Boom. Hear me. Christians, hear me on this. Don't do to Jesus what he did not do to himself. Taking a stance. All right, if Jesus were here, here's what he'd say about this. He didn't do that. Hey, Jesus, because he was asked this question. When Pilate killed those Galileans, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Pilate killed all those Galileans, slaughtered these Galilean Christians. What do you think about that? Let's talk about your heart. That's what he did. Let's talk about your heart. Jesus did not allow himself to be backed into a corner to just have this simplistic look at the world because guess what? It's complex. Very few times is it like black and white, like here, here. I think more times than we want to admit, it's right here in the middle. So let me give you examples of this. Here's what some of you would say. Take, pick your current issue. How could a Christian ever vote for this person? Pick your side. <laughs> That's political simplicity. Because hear me, some of you aren't going to like this. There are faithful Christians on both political ends. And there are people on both ends that claim to be Christians that aren't. And when we allow ourselves just, nope, if you're a Christian, you got to wear this hat, we are taking this political simplistic idea saying, well, this is easy, it's black and white, here's what Jesus would do. You can't do it. So in this room, this is what I love about our church. We have people from so many different backgrounds, ethnicity, parts of the country. Some of you are passionate about the environment. Passionate about it. Like your, one of your main political issues is the environment. You want to take care of our planet. I think Jesus wants us to. Some of you, it's racial justice. Ending the inequality. Some of you, it's sexual um, power against women that you is your issue. You should, it's, it's a huge issue. Some of you, it's gun control. I know where most of you stand on that. But, hey, I go to New York City and preach this same sermon in Rich Perez's church. We're a different place. Abortion. Women's issues, death penalty. Like, I could keep going. Here's the flaws when Christians say, nope, here's my issue. It's, it's my number one issue. It should be your number one issue. And this is easy. Here's what Jesus says about this. Boom. Hear me. We can't do it. Give to God's, what God, what's God's. Give to Caesar, what's Caesar's. When we allow ourselves to be backed into a corner and then just react, Bleh, we're not looking like Jesus at all. So you're at the water cooler tomorrow, getting your drink, and here comes the guy that's on the opposite side of you. Hey, what do you think about this whole immigration thing? Here's the flesh response. I'll tell you about immigration. Boom. But here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's giving us permission to not have to go here or here, but to go right here and to maybe have a different response. What do you think about immigration? Well, okay. Um, I think that humans are created in the image of God. And that's a complex issue. Give to God what's God's, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. 
Well, what do you think about racial injustice, all the, the, the racism in our country? Well, here's what I think. I'm trying to have as many lunches and dinners with people that don't look like me as I can to try and understand. You see the different response? It's a Jesus response. It's the third way. It's right in the middle where we can be in both. He'll say, let me talk to you for a second. As a pastor here, one of your pastors, my ultimate goal is that we as a community look like Jesus. I don't believe it's my job to tell you who to vote for, to tell you what issues that you need to put at the top of your list. I feel it's our job to point you to Jesus and his kingdom so then you can discern for yourself that Jesus way in the midst of it. That's what, that's what I believe here. That's what we believe. We believe there's a middle way. It's a Jesus way. That we can be in a world that's broken and, and not be passive. Like fight against brokenness. But do it in a way that represents Jesus well. Because here's what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Jesus way. Peace, love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the Jesus way. So how can our living rooms and our water coolers and our dinner conversations, instead of having to go here or here, oh, it's this, or oh, I don't care. How do we start to go here? That in-between. Because here's the reality, church, I want you to know this. Most of the things that's wrong with our world, you have no control over. Like you can get worked up into frenzy about immigration, whichever side you're on. You know how much control you have over that? Zero. So on that issue, find the middle. So I'm not saying middle, like don't be, but find a way that you can represent Jesus while doing good at the same time and not allow yourself to feel like, oh, I've got to be here or here. Jesus didn't do that. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to the Lord what's the Lord's. So let me end with this illustration. I was a school teacher for almost five years before I came into the ministry and went to work in a small town west of here to teach and coach football. And um, I know what the law says about teachers and faith, right? We are not, teachers are not allowed to get up in front of their class and say, you all need to believe in Jesus, and we, we can't do that. But I also know this, my allegiance is to Jesus first. So wrestling with how do I be a public school teacher and give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to the Lord what's the Lord's. I want you to know that, like, I had, and I'm not saying this to both, I had a huge impact in the school I was in. Huge impact. Lots of kids coming to our church and coming to Christ. I never stood in front of a class and said, hey, you all need to believe in Jesus. But I promise you, I had lots of conversations. Waiting for students to come to me, engage things. Sometimes I talk to teachers, well, like, I, can't, I can't say anything. That's not true. It's not true. You can give kids advice. You can talk to them as they come to you about problems. You can, like, you can bring faith in your ultimate allegiance to God anyway. Now, to come in guns blazing to school, I'm the Christian, you all know. It's the Jesus way. It's the middle way. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to the Lord what's Lord. As we wrap up here, 
What do you do with this? I don't know. I really, I really wrestled with this sermon for quite a while. I don't know where this hits you. I don't know what your issue is. I don't know what your water cooler is like. I don't know what your office is like. I don't know what your school is like. But how do you go into the world, a place, and not have to be way over here, nor have to be over, way over here and not engage? Find the Jesus way. Find the way where you can push back kingdoms of darkness in a way that honors and loves Christ. And ultimately, as we do communion, the reason we do that is because of the cross. Right? Jesus came in our world, pushed back darkness, and now invites us to do the same. Let's pray together.